So this will be our final week on marriage and sexuality, out of the little excursion, out of the woman in the well story of the Gospel of John. And then, but we won't get back to the Gospel of John next week. Next week is Palm Sunday, and so we're going to do something a little bit different for Palm Sunday. So I encourage you to come out or watch uh, for that as we do a little, go through the journey of the cross on Palm Sunday. And then also on Easter, we'll be doing a little something different as well too. But I promise, post-Easter, we will get back uh, to that end of John 4. We will get there. Don't worry, it's not going anywhere. So last week, we talked about marriage as a covenant Right On your wedding day, uh, you make unconditional promises, and your marriage is about a lifetime fulfilling and living out those promises you make on your wedding day. And we also learned that God is fundamentally a covenant-keeping God, a promise-maker and a promise-keeper. In fact, this is actually how the world functions, is through God's promise-making and God's promise-keeping, and everything functions this way. So the question I want to pose to you today is, how do you remember your promises? How do you remember your promises? Now, I'm at the certain stage in my life where I need a lot of help remembering things. And it's not because I don't have the capacity to remember. This is what I'm telling myself. It's because I have to remember a lot of things. There's a lot of information that I've got to remember and passwords and things, all, all sorts of things. So I need, in order for me to remember things, I need a lot of notifications. I need a lot of handwritten notes. I need a lot of things popping up in my life. I mean, lots of ways. I mean, some people write the old-fashioned way, tie something around your finger to remember, but then like, I wouldn't remember what that is. I need to explicitly, this is what you need to do now, right? Or remember this. So all the kinds of things. So what do you do to remember your promises? And we make a lot of promises. Last week we talked about sometimes they're flippant, casual, sometimes they're serious and solemn, but we make a lot of promises. Some that are really significant on our wedding day, some that are even more insignificant. All of us need to be reminded of the promises we make. All of us need to be reminded. All of us need a constant reminder, day in and day out, our circumstances can blur, distract, and disorient us from the promises we have made and the promises that actually sustain us. So how do you remember your promises? Well, sexual union... Sex is actually designed and created to be a reminder of your promises. That is not normally how you think about sex. But sex is actually supposed to be a reminder of promises that you make. In fact, sex is a remember-all. If you're familiar with Harry Potter, Neville Longbottom is one of these forgetful kids, and so he has this little device called a remember-all, or a magical device that helps him remember. I would actually wish this device actually existed, because I would carry it with everywhere I go to remember all the things I need to do. But it's a remember-all, remembers the things that you need to forget. And so sex is a re- meant to be a remember-all, to remember promises you have made and recall them. Sex is also, right, a means of procreation, right? 
Children, ask your parents what that means. So you can talk about what that actually means. Sex is also a means of communication, right? There's a a deep intimacy in sexual union. So it is a nonverbal form of communication. You ought to be communicating the right things. And sex is also a means of recreation. Now, I don't say recreation as to be casual or flippant, but it's just because it actually rhymes with the rest of it. But here's what I actually mean by that. It actually means it's, it's, it's a means of joy, of pleasure. If there is no pleasure in sex, there's something's wrong with that, right? And just like all things God gives us to be meant to be enjoyed, Ecclesiastes 2, 24, 25, in fact, the whole book of Ecclesiastes is an emphasis on this point. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or can have enjoyment? So partly what Ecclesiastes is saying is that all things that God has given you are meant to be enjoyed. He's not a cruel God. He's not mean to throw something out there like, huh, huh, right, no, don't touch, don't, don't do that. No, he's meant, they're created and designed to have for you to enjoy in a particular way, in the way that they are designed to enjoy. So sex, by its creation, by its gift, is enjoyable. But we know like all things that are created to be enjoyed, it is fleeting. It does not sustain. It does not satisfy the soul. Even marriage, your work, vacations, food, all of these things can be enjoyable. Whatever it is can be enjoyable, but when we try to enjoy them or try to use them to satisfy a joy that they were not meant to satisfy, they do not work, and they harm, and they hurt us. The problem is not enjoying things. The problem is trying to find enjoyment in things in the way they are not meant to be enjoyed. There is a design and purpose for all things, including our sexuality. And it's in that context and that design and purpose that that we are meant to enjoy those things. Which gets us to my main point, right? Sex is a means of procreation. It's a means of communication. It's a means of recreation or enjoyment. But yes, in part, all those things are true. But sex is actually mainly a means of invocation. I said that word at the very beginning. It is a means of invocation. So we are invoking something. We are reminding ourselves. We are pointing to something beyond what actually is happening. So it's actually remembering or recalling. So what is sex pointing to? What is it invoking? What is it calling into presence? Well, we just talked about marriage as our covenants. In fact, this whole world is structured in a promise-keeping, making way. And it's a covenant. Marriages are designed as a covenant. Promise-making, promise-keeping. Sex is a marriage covenant ratifying and renewing oath sign. What? (laughs) It's a renewing oath sign. So sex is designed to point you to the promises you make the vows that you make on your wedding day. And so a oath sign, we'll get more into this in a moment, a oath sign actually points you to the vows or to the promises. And a great thing about oath signs and any kind of covenant, how it's structured, they're meant to be repeated over and over and over and over again to continually remind you of the things that you promised. 
things that you promise. So we make one-time vows, right? Scripture is very clear about this. You should not keep having to make the same vow over and over again. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. What you say is what you'll do. You make promises. Promises that seal your marriage on that day. And then we make an all covenants. All covenants. You have oath signs. Oath signs which are renewed over and over again that point you and remind you of the vows and the promises that you have made in the covenant. And so sex, sexual union, is designed to point you throughout your marriage to remind you to the promises you made. Let me explain this a little bit further and kind of really flush this out in this cultural context of covenants and in scripture. All right, so this is how all covenants work, vows and oath signs. And God has structured the world where there's promise keeping and promise fulfilling. And he's given us marriage as this. And marriage, marriage, our temporal marriages are actually meant to point to his marriage with us. So our promises and our oath signs are actually meant to point us to his promises and his promise keeping. So marriage is a covenant that is ratified by sexual intimacy at its inception. And so we actually have laws on the books today in most states, not all, but in most states, a marriage is consummated or sealed through sex. So you can actually make promises at your wedding, and then if there is no sexual union, you can actually get that marriage annulled in most states in this country. Because it's hearkening back to this idea that sexual union was the completion of that, is the oath that gets repeated and over and over again. You don't need to remake, you need to renew your vows. In fact, a lot of those renewing vows ceremonies, they're okay. I mean, like, let's not go crazy about this, but they're not necessary because that's not how vows work. But oath signs are meant to remind yourselves, like, man, go ahead, pull out your vows and remind you and your spouse about your promises. Those are good things to do. But you don't actually say them, or you actually, you know, I vow again. No, just remind yourself of the vows. But that's how sex is designed, right? The other thing in Scripture, pro, in covenants, procreative organs are often associated with oaths and covenants. Not just in marriages, but in all kind of covenants in that time, procreative organs are associated with oath signs. I'll give you an example. Circumcision. Circumcision. So this is the big covenant God makes with Abraham. He says, I promises to bless you and to multiply you, and then a couple other things he made promises as well, right? And, and what does he tell him to do? What, what, what do you need to do to remind yourself of this promise I make to you, Abraham? What do you and all your descendants need to do? You need to trim your male organ, Right? That's, I guess, the kindest way of saying it. Now, that is a really heavy-handed reminder. Right? Because every adult male, they would remember, why are we doing this? And they would remember, oh, yeah, because God promised that. And every time, every time a man had to go to the bathroom, he would be reminded of these promises. Every time he had sexual union with his wife, he would be reminded, what happened here? Oh, these are meant to be promises. I mean, it's a heavy-handed reminder, but this is what it is for. And so forth, as it goes on through generations, it's the point to, and to tell your kids, why is this? Why do we do this? It's to remind us of God's promises. 
Now, it doesn't just stop there. In Genesis 24, 1 through 4, this is perhaps my favorite O sign in Scripture. Now, Abraham was old and well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charged all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. Now, that's a euphemism. That is a nice way in English in taking an idiom in Hebrew and doing something like Lamar Lynch would do as he crossed the end zone. It is like grabbing the male organs, take another man's hand, say, we're going to make an oath, and I'm going to make a promise. You're going to promise something, and we're going to seal with this oath side. So he takes his servant's hand, gra- takes him, like, you're going to grab my male organs, and we're, we're sealing the deal today. Now, that's a promise to make. You will remember that event. You are not forgetting that moment. And so this procreative organs are tied to the promise that Abraham demands his servant makes, which is, by the way, that I make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of Canaanites among whom I dwell. He actually tells him, go to my ancestral land and go take, find a wife for my son Isaac. And the oath sign is grabbing his procreative organs. Pretty heavy-handed as well. Do you see the connection here? All these procreative organs tied to not just marriage covenants, but to all covenants in ancient. Very common thing to do. So oath signs also depict either the curse of the covenant or the, the, the strength and commitment of that covenant. So the seriousness of that covenant. So in the covenant of marriage is to each other if the commitment of marriage to each other is to love one another in the one flesh union, surely there is no vivid, more vivid depiction of that ideal, of that one flesh commitment than the physical act of sexual union. Now, we know one flesh is not just a physical act, but it is a physical reminder that you are to belong to each other in one flesh, one mind, one body, one intellect, one relationally, emotionally, spiritually, all these things in this one flesh. This is a, a serious commitment. And so that oath sign points to the reminder of the seriousness and what those promises are. And the other thing, right, we've talked about this before, that word no in Scripture, this covenant-keeping word, right, is, is, refers to sexual intimacy, and it also means to covet keeping as well, too. So we've talked about how, especially uses in, in Amos 3.2, uh, God says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. He's talking to Israel. Right? So this is not actually, I cognitively know you because God knows all people. But he says, I know you specially. You are my covenant people. I made promises to you. And then, and this double entendre and gen- is to have sexual intimacy well, with what's worth no as well, too. And so you get this with uh, Adam and Eve in Genesis for one, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. And so there is this double, the two uses of no, this double entendre of covenant keeping and sexual intimacy. This tied together. This, this, so what, what, the point is that marriage is a covenant. And that sexual relations in marriage and in, in that union is designed and a means to procreate. Right? There's a practical means to this, have offspring. It's a means of communication, a means of be, being one together, not the sole means, but a means of communicating intimacy. 
There's a means of recreation. There's a physical joy that's meant to be as God's gift to us. And all, we know all joys point to a greater joy in who God is. And then fourth, and I think even more significant in sexual union, is that it is invoking something. It is pointing to, it is inviting the promises back into the present in which you have stated before. Those unconditional promises that you make to, to remind yourselves and each other and the whole world of those sacred promises you made. All this is to say is that marriage is a double-bonded covenant relationship. And here's what I mean by double-bonded covenant relationship. There are vows and there are oath signs. The vows you make once, the oath signs you repeat over and over again, which point to the promises. And they both tie you together. Gets to our passage today, Hebrews 6, 13 through 20. This is not just about marriage. This is about how all covenants work. And you see, I'm getting an illustration of how a covenant God made with Abraham works in this manner, and then how we're actually applying this now to the marriage of covenant, the covenant of marriage. Hebrews 6, 13 through 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, that's the great thing about the promise to Abraham, God doesn't make Abraham make a promise to him, except Will you trust my promise? Will you trust my promise? For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to whom to swear, he swore by himself. Right? This is really thing, so there's a practical thing that they would swear to different kinds of levels of, hey, I'm really serious. And so God, like, there's nothing greater to swear to than God himself. So like, oh, I it's my word. So it's just, this is the greatest thing I could swear by. Saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Now, just a side note, that is a really generous description of Abraham, right? And I just hope God is that generous with us as we patiently await his promises in our life. But I think that God is generous with us. And that's just a generous way of saying Abraham was patient. Although his journey was not straight, it took a lot of turns, but with God, he patiently waited. So he obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, a oath is final for confirmation. So here's the point. In all covenants, there is promises, and to consummate that covenant, there needs to be an oath sign. So just like Abraham, and it's God's covenant with Abraham, the oath sign, the promise that God made to him, the oath sign had to be, right, or was, associated with procreative organs, as most covenants are, circumcision. And that was to remind of what God's promises were to Abraham, which is really fascinating. It's not Abraham's promise to God. It's to certainly remind God's grace upon Abraham and his descendants. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise... The unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with oath. Why is this important? He's not talking about this to Abraham, right? He says, to the heirs, to all those that come after Abraham, they have to remind it because they weren't there the day the promises were made. 
So these oath signs have to be renewed over and over again. And you find this in Scripture as the covenant is renewed over and over again. Not because it was null and void. It's because the generations that come after have to remind, what were the promises again? And so these are oath signs that are repeated over and over again. He guaranteed it with the oath, which this is really kind of an important thing we get to in a moment. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, what are those two unchangeable things that bind us together with God? The vow and the oath. The vow is not sealed until the oath happens. Just like in marriage. The vow is not sealed, it's not a marriage, until it's consummated. Until the oath sign happens. In which it's impossible for God to lie, who, who, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Do you hear that very carefully? Right? So we have a hope. The hope is the promises that God says. What are the promises that God gives us? You will live forever. You will be with me. Your sins are forgiven. That there's going to be one day without pain, death, Right? All those things. These are God's promises, yet they're not fully realized. And so we're in the midst of our circumstances day in and day out. And what is our hope? What's the anchor of our soul? The promises of God. And the oath signs. The things that remind us of God's promises. We hold fast to the promises of and oath. That's why we come together every Sunday to invoke the promises and the oath. The anchor of our soul that gets us through the week. That gets us through every moment. That gets us through the sin and the depth of despair of, of our own heart. Is that God's promise to us. Covenants are promises. And God is a promise giver and a promise keeper. And the renewing oath signs always point to the promises that are made. Sex is a renewing oath sign that point to the promises that bound you together. So I just want you to make very clear. Sex, sexual union, without promises, what, do they, what does it point to? If it's designed to point to something, if it's divine to invoke something, if this is the way that God has created it to be, what does it actually point to? It points to that there were no promises. There is no anchor of your soul. There is no security. In fact, sex without promises, by its very construction, actually will produce anxiety, insecurity, and hopelessness by its very nature if you rip it from its promises from which it's supposed to point to. Sexual union obligates the marital vows. It obligates the marital promises and love that it symbolizes. And so if it's ripped away, then there is no promise of love. 
In fact, that's why there's many Old Testament case laws and Leviticus and Deuteronomy that talk about, that actually mandate if there's actually a sexual union, like, hey, you need to make the promises. You, need to, you may need to make this right. Does this mean, I want to be very clear here, right? Does this mean that if you have premarital sex that you have to marry the person that you have premarital sex with? Do not apply this sermon all by yourself. Be very careful with my words. That's just a general rule to go by. Be very careful with my rules. Do not try to apply the sermon. Like I think it takes, it's a little more complicated than that. So let's not be taking the overarching principle which God has designed and applying it to every case. Look, we know that there's a God of grace and all circumstances. And that's why those things that do not are actually case laws and not the moral law. God creates the moral law and then he creates all these things because he knows we have broken hearts. And he tries to, how do we, how do we just manage your brokenness in this world? So out sex outside the created purpose and design of the joy of sexual union is hopelessness. It does not point to that one flesh union. It does not point to the, the physical, emotional, and spiritual thing that it actually points to, this one flesh that actually is meant to encompass the, the dignity of both people and the dignity of our promise keeper. I want to illustrate this practically for you because... Um, I like pictures, right? If a book's got pictures, I'm in, right? So even like I, Bibles with like illustrations, like, yes, I need to see a map. I need to see diagrams. And I love all that stuff. So let, let's just illustrate that. So uh, a verbal promise initiates marriage or inculcate marriage, which would say for back in that time would be uh, marriage was a little bit different. We have this thing called engagement. And then we have the wedding day where we actually make promises and then we have like the wedding night, which consummates that, right? Well, back in that time, and you can particularly understand this in the story of Mary and Joseph, right? The promises to Mary were the same that we make the promises at our wedding day. So it's a preliminary marriage that has not been consummated, and that usually lasted a year. So your betrothed, those, those are promises you make in the betrothal vows. So those verbal promises initiate the marriage, and you cannot break them. That's why everyone's upset, like if Mary is pregnant before they have consummated, because they've already made the promises, there's an immoral thing going on. And it's a big tension in that moment. So that's that first line, betrothal thing, that two-bonded covenant, right, that connects a husband and wife together. Well, sexual union initiate, it consummates the marriage, right? It's the oath sign. Points to those promises. And back at that time, points, remember a year ago we made those promises? Yeah. And then every, right, we prom, remember those promises? One, the top one is a one-time act. The other one is an act that happens over and over and over again to point to those promises. But both of those things, the, sign, the vow and the oath, connect you together. So only a writ of divorce, only a piece of paper where you have to go before a judge or you have to go before the religious leaders at that time can sever the bond of betrothal, can say like, okay, it's right, you, you no longer have, you no longer are married because you, those, those vows and those promises are no, you no longer have to keep. Only a, a judge or a and I, I, you like the chainsaws up there? Like, this is severe. I could just like, let's not take this lightly. Let's like, this is a violent act uh, on this because you're destroying one person. The two become one. Um, 
That was the best clip art I can find. So, um, the betrothal vows. So only, only a writ of divorce could do that. So a judge or the religious leader at that time could do that. Only, so sexual immorality cannot sever the bond of betrothal, cannot sever the promises because it's not associated with that. But, right, only sexual immorality severs sexual union. Only severs the oath sign, right? So we talk about, we'll talk about sexual immorality in a second. But that's the only thing. So a divorce or a writ of paper or a, ru- a ruling by a religious leader or a judge cannot sever the bond of sexual union and only severs the promises. You understand what's happening here? It's, it's a little complicated, but here's the thing. Here's, here's the practical conclusion of Scripture, what it's trying to say. So accordingly, a, if a divorce, that writ of paper that breaks the promises, is anything other than sexual immorality, the sexual bond of marriage remains intact. Because only sexual immorality severs that bond. And it severs that bond whether you keep the promise or not. So if you are a person and you are married and you made promises and yet you commit adultery, it does not break your promises. It does sever the sexual union for a moment. Until you have sexual union with another person, your wife again, then it severs this sexual union. Now, you would never, you would not have adultery and then, well, it's severed, I have to marry this person. That's not how it would work. Right, those two things are separated and connected. So Matthew 5, 31 through 32 says, it is also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, right, there's that certificate. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a, a, a divorced woman commits adultery. So saying the only way that a person should ought to get a written divorce is because the sexual union has been broken with sexual immorality. Then it's permissible to get a writ of divorce. And one of the reasons God institutes this, because in this male-dominant society, men abused women in this manner, in that they just said, I'll give you a writ of divorce. I don't like you. You're not providing children for me. Uh, I no longer have to pledge to my promises. And God does not like this. This is not a standard in which God likes. Like, no, no, no. Your promises are not that flippant. All right, so here is this broken standard in which I give you, in which you must obey. And this was rampant, particularly in Jesus' time as well. Let me just clear out what sexual immorality is in brief. I'm not going to go much into it. Sexual immorality is premarital, pros- premarital sex, adultery, prostitution, homosexuality, and any general term. Any general for any sex of uh, any act of sexual immorality, including willful desertion. So there's a lot of things more we could talk about that, and that's another conversation for another time. But it is a broad act, which really says that the sexual union is only designed between a man and hum- woman in a marriage because promises were made, because that sexual union points to the promises that were made in that covenant. Period. Another point. So there's like. If you're divorced or been divorced, uh, right, it's, it's based on sexual immorality. No bond remains. No bond remains. Both of them can be broken in that way. And a marriage to another person would not be an act of adultery. But breathe for a second. Be careful. Do not apply this sermon 
outside of community. Don't just take my words like, well, this is exactly what he must mean at this moment. Right? Because all of these things that God has given actually case law to apply in moral law. And so there's a place we know that we have a God of grace, forgiveness, and repentance, and he knows we are broken. And, he, and you are more broken than you can ever imagine. Right? So there is a place in community and relationship to actually talk about this and discern together how do we go forward. Right? So I'm just saying be careful how you apply this directly. We'll talk about, but that's the overall principle of sexual union. So how do you remember your promises? Sex is designed as a remember-all. It's to point us to a sacred and the unconditional promises that you make to your spouse. And then, right, because we know that marriage is a shadow covenant anyway, that actually points to a larger thing, a larger covenant, that marriages, our promises and our oaths in marriage, our promises and our sexual union, all are designed to point to God's marriage to us. All of that is meant to point us and everyone else that it's meant to point to God's promises to us and God's oath signs to us. Now here's the thing. What's God's oath sign? What's the oath sign to the covenant of marriage with God? It is not sexual union. Right? It is not sexual union. What is the oath sign to, the, to our, mar- our marriages point to God's marriage with his people? What is the oath sign? Let's go back to the woman at the well for a second. John 4, 14 through 18. Jesus says, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water rolling up to eternal life. And the woman said, sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now, we know, if we read John, we, we know what actually Jesus is referring to. What is, what is the promise that Jesus is actually offering her? He's promising her eternal life. He's promised her relationship with God, but he's also promising the Holy Spirit, which is the spring of life, the water. And we know that because John explicitly says that later on in his gospel. That's really important to understand, that he's offering the Holy Spirit to remind you of the promises that he made. We'll go on. What's the next thing that Jesus says to her? After he makes this promise, and she's like, this is a good idea. He says to her, go call your husband. He immediately refers to, to this marriage covenant that she's had. Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying you ha- I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. May no promises to you. What you have said is true. Jesus makes a promise, an offering to the woman who has lived and is living in a life of brokenness and hurt and pain because of the broken promises of men in her life. Be very clear about that. That's how the culture would have worked. The broken promises of men over and over again. Now, it could be some of her husbands may have died. We don't know explicitly. But it seems very unlikely that five would have died and we also know the culture at that time is that men can easily dismiss 
woman with a writ of divorce. So she is living in brokenness of men breaking their promises to her in this hurt. And in that moment, he says, I offer you a promise. I'm going to give you eternal life. I'm going to invite you into a relationship with God Almighty. Right? If you read between, he's offering into a union with him. Into the sacred marriage with him and his bride, the body of Christ. It's not all explained out there, but that's really what he's offering. And then it's, I'll give you the Holy Spirit. Now, he doesn't say that explicitly too, but that's what he's saying. I will unite you forever with me in my promises and my oath signs. And the only condition is you just drink. Come, you're invited. The next thing he does, he identifies the five times that these husbands have broken their vows in this broken culture. And then he says, look, the man that you are having sex with now has even made promises. doesn't even give you the dignity of promises. doesn't even think you're worth it. Jesus doesn't invite her just into a new promises. He invites her into a new life. Into a relationship that will not break her, but that will heal her. That will restore her. That will be a forever union and not temporary. And he gives her the reminder. It's like, I give you this promise and I'll give you the reminder of the Holy Spirit which will seal this marriage, which will seal this union. 2 Corinthians 1, 21-22, this oath sign of the Spirit of the pro- to the promises of God. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. And you all have also put his and who has also put his seal on us, giving us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. As a guarantee to what? To the promises that he made. To the promises that were in him, that were forgiven, that we are made righteous, that we will live forever. All these promises of God, which we are not fully realized in this moment, he says, look, I'm giving my Holy Spirit, which is the guarantee, which also we know is the Holy Spirit has also begun working in us to fulfill those promises of God as well too. Jesus is offering the woman healing from broken covenants in this broken world from broken men. He's given her healing to forget all those broken covenants and remind yourself of my promise, of who I am. I am the promise maker and I am the promise keeper forever. Jesus gives us his spirit as a remember all for the promises that he makes, for the things that he has done and that he will do. Marriage is designed as a covenant. All marriages. All marriages are designed with, with, with promises and they're all designed with renewing oath signs to remind us of our promises every day. Look at in our marriage with God, our union with God, do you not need to be reminded every day of his promises? Or you'd find with the one okay time, yeah, I remember that promise. It's done. 
every day, in fact, every moment, you need to remind it of His faithfulness. The Spirit is the guarantee. The Spirit is the guarantee. All our marriages are meant and designed to point to that marriage. That marriage. And all of our promises and all of our oath signs are to point to the promises and the oath sign that he gives us. We remember God's faithfulness through any temporal faithfulness that we have in this world. Any temporal faithfulness that we have, even if it's fleeting, those are all shadow pointers to his faithfulness, which is not fleeting. Will you live your life, your marriage to your spouse, and your marriage to God, which this applies to all now, right? Your marriage to God, as a remember all, not to your faithfulness, but to God's faithfulness, to God's grace, to God's promises in your life. Let's pray. Gracious Father, there's so much that we need to confess and so much that weighs on our hearts, but I know that you are God that knows everyone in this room and everyone online, everyone in this world, the depth and brokenness in our hearts. You know the broken promises that we have made in this world. You know the broken promises that have wounded us and hurt us. And yet, you come to us not saying, hey, you need to be more faithful, but you say, I am faithful. I am good. I will heal you, Lord. There is no words to give you thanks. There is not enough time in eternity to give you thanks. But we will start today to thank you for this grace, for this faithfulness, for this design and purpose of marriage and sex, which all points to a greater good. Your promises, your faithfulness, Lord, help us to rely on your spirit. Let that spirit remind us each and every day of who you are, what you've done, and what you're doing. Heal us, Lord, today, and we thank you. We thank you for that healing. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen.